Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Friends, the scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 31. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see the city so full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or learning something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through your city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortal life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that each would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though, indeed, he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move And have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of an imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment of silent reflection. Let's pray together. 
Gracious God, as we enter this moment of silence and reflection, still there's that inner critic chattering toward us, filling our mind with messages. If you have things that you need to accomplish or things you haven't accomplished or you're a failure or you'll never be enough, whatever that message might be, it floods our consciousness. We're bombarded every day by messages from outside, thousands, millions of messages trying to convince us to become someone different, to purchase something different. And in the midst of all the static and confusion, we are more anxious and more exhausted. We come to this very moment from a diversity of perspectives and experiences. Some of us hopeful, joyful, optimistic of what you're doing in our lives. Some of us despairing or afraid or angry or depressed or addicted. We come to this moment believing and unbelieving. Most of us somewhere in between. But however we find ourselves right now, we pray that you would break through all the static and help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize. That you see us in all our complexity and contradictions and your response is to move toward us in the sacrificial, self-giving love of Jesus Christ. And so we pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed and we would be sent out to be your very agents of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So last week, my family and I went to Washington, D.C. for the five-day obligatory go to the capital of the nation, see all the monuments, the museums, and all of that. And it was phenomenal. And one of the things I love to do in a city like Washington, D.C. is as I'm walking around and I'm going to, you know, the Lincoln Memorial. You say, first you're learning about Lincoln and you see the Gettysburg Address on the left wall. You see his second inaugural address on the second wall. You see the way that the, the beauty that, uh, that the architect could behold in the stone with all of the relief and the shadows. And you're kind of in awe. You turn around and you see the whole mall of Washington, uh, you know, Washington Monument and then the Capitol Building. But I like to step back and say, what, why is this monument here? Well, it's here because Abraham Lincoln was really important. Great, but what's the value of Abraham Lincoln to the, our society, and why do we invest millions of dollars and all this you know, human ingenuity and power to build this monument? Ask the same thing about the Capitol building, right? Why is the Capitol building so grand? Well, our society wanted to say that all the power doesn't rest just at the White House, that Congress has equally a beautiful of a house to live in, right? Same with the Supreme Court, because we value the balance of powers. The point is, our monuments tell you about what we value. You ever walk through a city like that? Once you start walking through a city like that, if you're traveling for a couple days and just saying, what did this city invest in? And what does it tell us about the values of this city? You ever walk around San Diego like that? It's interesting, right? Because if you walk around Washington, D.C., you can see that it values political power. If you walk around New York City, you can see that it values finance and success. What do you think San Diego values? What are our biggest buildings? Todd, that was a rhetorical question, but you answered it, so I want to hear what you said. Natural resources? Okay, like the ocean? Yeah, like we, of course, we're an outdoors people. All right, now this is, now this is Q&A time. What else, if you walk around San Diego, what do you see? What, what do you, sports arena, so we want sports. 
Yeah, and Petco Park and the new stadium going out where you, you used to call it Qualcomm, and if you're an old-time San Diego person, you call it Jack Murphy Stadium. Uh, what else? Food. Throw a stone in this neighborhood, you're going to hit an eatery. By the way, we're getting a Michelin-rated chef in this neighborhood soon, so stay tuned. Big deal. Yeah. What are the biggest buildings downtown? Are the biggest buildings downtown the finance buildings? They're hotels. We value tourism. That's great. Which goes with the food and the sports and the entertainment and the ocean and all of that. Right? It's just neat. So then you take a step and you go, well, what is that doing to me? Because it's not neutral. It works on you. It does something to you. Then you can step back and you can go even further and say, I'm going to examine my life in this way. And I was just listening to a podcast yesterday about kind of the three things to look at when you examine your values. Look at your calendar, your bank account, and where you spend your energy. Those are like three tangible things you can go, where am I putting my money, my time, and my energy? These are the things that I actually value. Now, your, your diary might say you value other things, but this will tell you what you really value, right? So you're doing this check-in. Now, what's intriguing is 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul, one of the most influential church planters, the one who has written a tremendous amount of the New Testament, this is Paul that we're reading about here, is going through Athens. It's a world-class city. It's a world-class city of thinkers and doers and movers and influencers. And he goes to two places. The marketplace, we'll talk about that, and the Areopagus. The center of thought, the center of influence. And he's noticing what's important to these people. One of the things he notices is these people have within them the same thing you and I have. Bear with me here. They have what N.T. Wright would call an echo of a voice, a longing for something deeper in their life. For them, it manifested in the middle of the city, in the tomb of the unknown God. We long for some sort of transcendent connection, but we don't know who we're connecting with. See, even if you don't consider yourself a Christian or a religious person, you might say you're spiritual, but you're not religious, I would make the case there's something in your life that moves you toward the transcendent. It might be that moment you're at Sunset Cliffs and the sun finally sets over the horizon and the clouds behind you are illuminated in pink and purple and you can't help but get the chills and you want to applaud and oftentimes groups of strangers start cheering together. What's going on there? You're moved by beauty. You're moved by justice. Everyone in this room, everyone in the city agrees that justice is important. The problem is we can't agree on how to bring about justice. Right? It's this echo of a voice, this longing. We want it, but we can't get it. Or relationships. Deep down at your core, you know, I asked a friend of mine who's a therapist and has seen thousands of clients over the decades that he's been in practice. I asked him, what do you... What do you automatically assume about someone when all you've done is read their intake form and they're in front of you for the first 30 seconds? What is universally true about every human being? What's universally true about you and me is deep down you desire to be known and loved. And most of you are terrified of that. It's an echo of a voice. They're longing for, we're longing for something. Justice, beauty, spirituality, Relationship. 
And Paul says all of these things come together in the God that created you and knows you and loves you and didn't leave you forsaken but entered into the story. Now, I know someone says, look, those people back then were more prone to belief. Those people were more superstitious. You know, these were the people that had all these different temples and halfway around the world they were creating Stonehenge and things like, you know. These are are just like people that are prone to believe. And let me just tell you, you can see here, they were not quick to believe. Paul did not say, Jesus rose from the dead, and they said, thank you so much. I was waiting to hear that. That's all I needed, right? What was their response? They called him a babbler in verse 18 and said, you sound like a proclaimer of foreign divinities. Like, these people are not hearing it quickly or easily. But the next thing they said is, what you say sounds strange to us, but we'd like to hear more. We're kind of tracking. We don't fully get it. It's all new. Can we hear more? In fact, let's, let's invite you to the Areopagus, the place where you know, the main voices are heard, and we're going to really think this out. Friends, if you are trying on Christianity, if you're investigating becoming a Christian, this is a great pathway to go on. Go ahead. Call the gospel. Call me a babbler. But let that lead you to, this sounds interesting. I'd like to know more. You know you're on the right track when you start saying, I'm not sure if I believe these things, but there's a huge part of me that wishes they were true. I'm going to keep pressing in and seeing if they actually are true. Let that fuel the journey. And as it goes on, the claims that Paul made about Christianity, about Jesus, about the resurrection, were so powerful that people believed, they trusted, their hearts and minds were transformed, and eventually the empire was transformed. So we need to know that case that Paul made. In a skeptical culture... And the fact that we all have our own questions and our own doubts, the fact that we all have to deal with the own difficulties and setbacks of our own lives, the question is, is it possible to believe in something true that can make your whole life new? Is it possible to have a foundation of your life that is so solid that you can be resilient in the midst of all the waves crashing in your life and in this world? That you can have hope in the midst of despair. That you can have trust in the midst of confusion. And Paul would say, absolutely. But it's not merely a set of beliefs, it's a person and his name is Jesus. But then Christian friends, as you mature in your faith and following Jesus, it then presses you further because it's not only about you, it's about the way you engage with the world. So then it asks, how do you engage with your culture? with your friends, with your classmates? How do you engage with the people around you who think differently? And we see here that the gospel will transform your individual worldview. It will also transform the entire culture of society. And finally, and please hear me out on this, it leads to cosmic renewal. First, it will transform your individual worldview. See, the reason why Paul can stand like this in a place of influence and speak to a diversity of people is because first Jesus had spoken to his own heart. And once he got the gospel in his own heart, he could then address people on the level of their own hearts. And it's interesting because he's addressing two very different groups of people. It says here... um, Where does it say Stoics and Epicureans? Verse 18. Some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. These were the two leading philosophical schools of kind of the Greek, the Greco-Roman milieu at the time, the cultural intellectuals. 
they had both rejected traditional religion by and large. They didn't pray, they didn't worship, they had a perspective that would help them through the difficulties of life. Epicureans, they're my people. Okay. Epicureans were the ones who said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And the worldview was, the gods are either non-existent or indifferent. No help is on the way. Life is difficult. So, eat, drink, be merry, enjoy the 30 or 40 or 50 years you have on this rock floating around a fireball in the middle of the solar system because it's all going to burn up anyways. Epicureans. The Stoics were kind of the opposite of that. When suffering comes, and I know some of you are like this, I admire you, I just don't relate to you. When suffering comes, get tough. Put on, put on the armor. Become an armadillo. Harden your heart. Stiff upper lip. Grit your teeth and bear it. Life is hard and it will not break you. You have to be tougher than it is. That's why when someone endures a lot of pain without crying, they say that person's very stoic. Christianity comes and says to the Epicurean, who's eating and drinking and being merry for tomorrow we die, who's using their body as recreation and in the midst of it losing their very sense of self, Christianity comes to them and says, there's actually a depth and a connection. There's more meaning to your life than you could possibly imagine. You're more deeply valuable than you're giving yourself any credit for. And Christianity goes to the Stoic who's gritting themselves against the difficulty of this world and says, because of the resurrection of Jesus, you can face your troubles in this world with a humble hope, with a realistic hope, with a resiliency, because he'll never leave you or forsake you. And so Christians of all times and places have experienced troubles and famines and doubts and persecution and setbacks and disasters and wars and they've faced it with resilient, durable hope and it had a cultural impact. And to both, what does Paul say? What's the case? Jesus is risen from the dead. He was bodily risen and because of that everything is being renewed and here's the good news, you already know that God though you don't know him, right? I see that you know God, but you don't know God, so now I will proclaim to you the God that you are worshiping, right? Tomb of the, un the uh, unknown soul, the unknown God. So Paul, at the altar to the unknown God, I just went to the tomb of the unknown soldier in D.C., so that's still in my mind. Uh, Paul, at the altar to the unknown God, what are you, you, know, what, what are you talking about? What's he, what's he talking about? He says, what you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. You know God, but you don't know God. In other words, what he's saying is, there is no such thing as someone who is not religious. It means everyone in here is putting your faith and trust in something. The question is, do you know what that thing is? I read a tweet by theologian and pastor Tim Keller in New York City this week who said, we're at a moment in our society where on one hand, almost everyone agrees that you are entitled to your own values and value system. And at the same time, everyone agrees that caring for the poor and standing up for justice for the marginalized are non-negotiables. He said, that's the great contradiction of our society. Where do you get your value from? How do you make the decisions that you make in your life? How do, you, how do you set the trajectory of what you're going to invest in and fight for? 
Paul says all of us are doing that all the time. The question is, are you aware of the thing that's actually driving you? All of these things are longings, echoes of a voice, justice, relationship, beauty, spirituality. And I would make the case that they're longings that are deep within all of us, no matter what culture you go to, no matter what time zone, what language, what ethnicity, what language, they're in us because they're in the human DNA. It's in our operating system. And C.S. Lewis, the theologian of the 20th century, would say, Though, perhaps those longings are deep within all of us because there's actually something to be longed for. You know, I get thirsty. Well, there's such a thing as water. I get hungry. There's such a thing as food. If we all have these universal longings, perhaps there's something that actually can meet that longing. And he would make the case, let that drive you toward the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, Paul in our passage here says, and the good news is, this is not about you pursuing God, because God has been pursuing you. In verse 24, it says that God is basically ultimate, the God who made the world and everything in it. Ultimate. And verse 27 says, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. Intimate. God is both ultimate and intimate. So the hardest work for you and me is to actually open our lives up to receive it. The most powerful prayer you might pray today for your own life would be, God, if you really are good, you really are present, I invite you to have your way in my life right now. I'm open. The second prayer would be, and now that you're doing that, where would you send me and to whom and how? See how it transforms your individual worldview? But then it also transforms the whole culture of the society. And I love this part. Verse 17, where it says, So they argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So on one hand, he's going to the religious establishment. That's where you'd expect him to be. And then he goes to the marketplace. And marketplace does not do justice to the translation of where he actually was. The Greek word was agora. This was the center of the city. This was not Mission Valley Mall. Okay? It was nothing less than Mission Valley Mall, but it was a lot more than Mission Valley Mall. The Agora was the center of the entire city. It's one of the things that excites me about starting a church, like this church right here with all of you, in the middle of San Diego. Because if you want to transform the world, reach the city. I always say, if you want to care for the poor, go to the middle of the city because that's where the poor gather together. I don't have to tell you this. You see it in the tent cities, let alone all the non-governmental organizations there to help. The poor have always gathered in the center of the city for resources, for critical mass, for safety. If you want to reach the world changers and the influencers, reach the city because that's where policy is made. That's where the universities are. That's where the media is put together. Change the city, you change the world. And Paul knew this. So he goes to the Agora, which was on one hand the marketplace. It was also the media center. Before there was internet and, you know, Twitter and whatever your news feed is, before there were newspapers, before there was TV, you would go to the center of the city and listen for the town crier crying out the latest news. Extra, extra, read all about it. This is what's going on right now. It's where you would go to get the information. 
It was the media hub. And he goes there. It was the financial center. Before there was paper money or hedge funds or stocks and bonds or whatever you're using, cryptocurrency, before there was any of that, you would go to the center of the city. Investors and business owners would meet face to face to make their deals. Consumers would go to buy their goods in person. It was the business center. It was also the art center. The artists and the musicians, where were they, where were they sharing their work? It was a center of creativity. It was the intellectual center. It says there the people did nothing except for listening and learning new, whatever was new. Right? It was the intellectual center. There were no journals or editorials or peer-reviewed articles at the time. The philosophers would go and sit with each other to debate truth. Where did Socrates hang out? In the Agora. This is the place where Paul is. And here's the point. If you understand the gospel and live consistently with it, it will not stay in your private world. It will not stay merely here in a Sunday worship service. It will not stay merely on Sunday at all. It will roll and flow out of you into whatever spheres of influence you might have. I saw this happen a couple weeks ago. So I had been invited to step on the board of North Park Main Street. And the reason why I said yes was because of the message in this passage. And I don't see it as I pastor sometimes, and so that's part of my calendar, and then I help in terms of leading you know, some of the civic stuff that's happening in our neighborhood. I see them both as interchangeable with each other because it's all about God's care and renewal in this neighborhood. So when I get to go down to City Hall and I'm in front of you know, our city council, or when I'm now getting access to mentor some of the business leaders in our neighborhood, this is all my, just, I'm just sharing this with you, this is my particular way of trying to live out this invitation. What's it look like for you? It doesn't have to be in front of City Hall. It doesn't have to be mentoring business leaders. It might be a new way of looking at your classmates. It might be looking at your colleagues in a new way. To think about being a Christian in your particular workplace is not merely, you know, wearing an Ask Me About Jesus shirt, you know, on casual Fridays. It's actually, and I know that none of you would make that case but it's living out your life in your workplace in a way that makes people say there's something different about that person. I remember a guy who, he handled the whole stock trading desk for his multi-million, I mean, I don't even know, it doesn't matter, not counting his money. But he said, what's it look like for me to be a Christian in my office? And I said, make the best deals you possibly can and cheat nobody. Care for all of your employees really well and let them know that you're one of the most, that you are one of the people in life that cares for them the most. In a world that is cutthroat and will chew you up and spit you out because there's another person behind you, you invest in your people. And he did that. Over a month long, I don't know if anyone noticed. Over a year, over five years, that's an entirely different place to work. And that becomes a little slice of the kingdom of God wherever it goes. So what does it look like for you? How does it go out? On one hand, Paul lets 
the brokenness of his world distress him. Don't, don't miss that because we live in a society that says, look out for yourself and if other people are kind of falling by the wayside around you, that's really their problem, right? That's partially a product of post-enlightenment individualism, just about you. Or maybe in the church we'd say it's about you and God. Paul would say, no way. Paul walked into a city full of strangers and was d- distressed about the condition of their lives. Do you let the brokenness of other people around you distress you? Now, I'll also say there was a study done maybe a couple years ago at the height of the pandemic and said, one of the things that will go from a healthy distress which could lead toward healthy action to an anxiety that could lead to depression, the difference is if you are allowing yourself to be exposed to brokenness and you're choosing to do nothing about it, it increases your anxiety. So their example was, don't even open a GoFundMe page for someone's treatment. Don't even open it unless you're already committed to giving at least one (laughs) dollar. Because there's something in your brain that when you can connect, there's brokenness in this world, to I could be a part of helping it, even if it's just one little bit, that will actually activate more health in you. So the point is this. As you walk around your spheres of influence, where are the places of brokenness that you can help, even if it's just a little bit? Even if it's as simple as praying for that person. If it's as simple as a meal for that one moment. If it's as simple as you see, you know, you go into the store and you see that person at the counter is getting bogged down and they're just, they're stacked up. And, and you're kind of mad yourself because they're taking too long for you. And instead of just saying, hey, I see that you're overworked and I want you to know I'm cheering for you. Watch their shoulders go down. You just lowered a person's blood pressure with your words. What if that's your attitude toward everybody that you meet? Allow it to distress you. And then do something about it. And then I love how he, like, en- he enters in and he understands so that he can connect. He says, hey, even your own poets say these things. Even your own poets say, for we too are his offspring. He was quoting the Athenian poet Aratus. He's like, I know your music. I know your poems. I know your movies. I know what you're into. I'm listening to it too. He actually entered into their worldview. And he could repeat it back to them better than they could have repeated it. And then said, let me show you what that all leads to. He says, you know that in him we live and move and have our being. But you're not going to know who that God is unless God reveals God's self to you. I was listening to a podcast last night by the cosmic affairs correspondent for the New York Times. New York Times has a cosmic affairs correspondent. And that person majors in everything that has to do with black holes and physics and Einstein and all of that. And he at one point said, we are all equal in our ignorance. Nobody knows. This is someone who for 40 years has met with the top minds and thinkers in the whole world and studying it closely every single day. He said, nobody knows. We're all equal in our ignorance. He said, it actually takes a lot of intelligence to admit that you don't know. And Paul said, you're all right. You are all correct. Nobody knows who God is. Who do we think we are to know who God is? The answer is, we wouldn't. Except, God in God's brilliance and love chose to reveal God's self to us in Jesus. 
That's how we know. You can know about the beauty of God by looking at the sunset, but the sunset cannot tell you the character of God. You can know the power of God by feeling, you know, the crush of the waves at the ocean, but you cannot know about how God feels about you. But when you look at Jesus, you know the character of God who loves you more than you even love yourself. All that power, all that beauty focused toward you for your forgiveness and renewal. And it leads to cosmic renewal. In verse 31, he says, God has fixed a day on which God will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What is he talking about? Resurrection will become known as the first fruit of what God has in store for all of us. The sneak preview of where the entire story of history is going. And here's the interesting thing. In the, in the 5th century BC, in a play by Aeschylus, who, who was the Athenian dramatist, in that play, the god Apollo inaugurates the Areopagus. Okay? So this is the origin story play for the very space where they're standing. And everybody would have known about it. And in that play, one of the things Apollo says at, is at the foundation, when a man dips his blood, when a man spills his blood on the ground, there is no resurrection. So the resurrection is ruled out on the grounds of the Areopagus. The resurrection is ruled out on the grounds of all their philosophy. It's ruled out by the news of today. It's ruled out by the modern worldview. And Paul puts it right back in the center. The focal point the epicentral event around which the world turns. History is moving in a direction with a divinely ordered goal in mind. I think this might be what Martin Luther King Jr. was describing when he said, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And this is what Paul's getting at when he says, God foresaw a day when God would judge, that word, judge in righteousness by Jesus. Now, someone says, Matt, this is what I hate about Christianity. You get us in here, you talk about God's love, and then you use the word judgment. We're allergic to that idea. But I would make the case to you, and I don't have time to get into it because we're about to end. You and I do not want a God who sees the brokenness of this world, who sees genocide, who sees child abuse, who sees the pain that we inflict on each other and does nothing about it. If you were out at the beach and you saw a parent whose child was being hurt by another adult and did nothing about it, what would you deduce? That is a bad parent. They do not care about their child. God looks at this world and says, I care about it. I will do something about it. Now, here's the catch. When you or I judge something, we only do it based on the best resources we have, which are obviously finite and flawed and limited. So we don't get judgment right. Don't confuse that for God's judgment. When the Bible talks about God's judgment, it's a way of describing God putting all things to rights. This is what we celebrate at this table where later you'll hear every tear will be wiped from every eye. Every injustice will be done away with. 
It's moving in that direction. And Paul says, how do we know it's going to happen? How do you know? He says, I know because he raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, he says, I believe that's going to happen because Jesus said it, and I believe in Jesus because he rose from the dead. A faith and a trust that can actually sustain you and hold you. Do you have that vision of renewal? I mean, how would your life be different right now if you could look at your own situation or at our world or in our society and say, God will renew even this. That's what turned the world upside down. That's what will transform your heart. That's what will renew our society. That's what will change the world. And so I'll leave you with these, this triple invitation, just from Paul's words. The first one is, he says, so what do you do about it? The Greek word is repent. The, 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 word, or the Greek word is metanoia. Change your mind. Change the way you think. Change the direction that you're going in. Recalculate, like it says in Google Maps, when you're off course. What if you reorient, reorient your life back to this story? Number two, turn toward the living God as he says, as you might grab for God even though God is not far from you. And number three is as you do, turn your attention to the waiting and watching world. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we get into this heady story in one of the most world-class, powerful cities in human history, we see how you transformed their lives individually and as a society. And we ask for the same thing here. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move through this place, through our hearts, through our lives, like a mighty wind, breathing new life into us and into this world. We pray that you would wake us up to your grace and send us out to be your very hands and feet wherever we go. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon.